Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. All right, excited to be here today. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and do not give him a high five or a holy kiss, but man, tell them how much you are or how excited you are that they made it today. Go ahead and do that. All right, turn to your second choice and say, go Cowboys. Go Cowboys. Come on. Uh, How many Boise State Bronco fans do we have here? All right, you are at the right church. Hey, if you are not a Boise State Bronco fan, we just ask you kindly to dismiss yourself. And uh, there are other great churches out there for you. We are just, I'm kidding. We, hopefully you stay and listen to this message. But hey, I, I got to get to the, the message really quick. I want to thank Mark for the transition. I love, I love that thought about uh, faith. Everyone say faith. Faith is acting as if God, what God has said, is true. Don't you like that? I think that is a great definition of faith. Uh, I really do believe, as we were praying, that the Holy Spirit's going to do some big things in your life this year, in this next season. How many of you believe that? Hey, so today we're going to be talking about big faith. We are not small frame thinkers. We are not small story people. We are big faith people, right? Big frame thinkers. And that's uh, the the title of my message here today. So if you brought your Bible, turn quickly to Luke chapter 8. I'm going to read three verses as my kids go crazy in the front row. Lord have mercy. Uh, This is uh, chapter 8. Verse 22 says, one day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Everyone say lake. So they set out, right? And as they sailed, he fell asleep, right? The disciples, like the sun's out, like they're going to go boating. This is what they're thinking. Sun's out, gun's out, right? They're going to have a great boat day, but then everything changes. And it says a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and they were in danger. Everyone say danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and barometric pressure. And they ceased and there was a calm. Verse 25, and he said to them, where is your faith? Could you just do this for me? Could you turn to your neighbor and say, where's your faith? Don't spit on him, right? (laughs) Where's your faith? I'm going to take the next 20, 25 minutes, and I'm going to try to unpack what that means. Where is your faith? And then uh, as the story continues, the disciples, as Luke tells us, they were still afraid. But I want you to follow the sequence. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water? Everyone say winds and water. Winds and water. Winds and water. Winds and water. And they what? They obey who? Am I, am I too loud this morning? Come on, somebody. And they obey who? They obey Jesus. All right, something, something's going on in this story, right? I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your energy. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful group of people. Lord, we thank you that you are um, doing a fresh work in our lives. 
We thank you that you're doing a great work in our city. You're doing a great work in our nation. Lord, I thank you that you take this pandemic and you work it out for the good of those who love you. Lord, I thank you this is not just about us. This is about us participating with you and how you want to rescue the world. And I thank you, Father, for just grace. I thank you for encouraging us today. And everyone said, amen. So a couple thoughts on this Jesus saying, where is your faith? First, and you got to hear me, Jesus is not rebuking them for panicking. I mean, come on. It would have been pathological not to panic in this situation. Now, we know these disciples, four of them are fishermen, right? So for them to panic, right, and all these disciples, in fact, grew up on the Sea of Galilee. So for them to panic means that this is more than just like a Mediterranean squall right? This is a megastorm. So when Jesus says, where is your faith? He is not saying that you don't have faith to the disciples. He's asking, please hear me. He's asking them, where is it? Where did it go? So please hear me. Jesus, when he says, where is your faith to to the disciples? He's not saying, guys, 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 you don't have faith. No, what he's saying is, where has your faith gone. So what Jesus is suggesting to his disciples is that they can misplace their faith. Have you ever misplaced your keys in your phone? See, I do this all the time. It's called dad brain and raising seven kids, seven feral kids, right? So if this happens probably three or four times a week where my wife and I will lose, I mean, we're, I think, you know, we have our minds so, so somewhat, right? Um, but generally, when we wake up in the morning, I don't know what it is, we just happen to misplace our keys and our, and our phone, right? We take it, we put it somewhere else that we normally don't put them. I think this is what Jesus is suggesting when he says, where's your faith? Misplaced faith, in other words, is putting your faith in something other than Jesus. We can put our faith, and please hear me. Um, Jesus, when he says, where is your faith, is saying that you can take your faith and you can put it in something other than him. So we can put our faith in the economy. We can put our faith in the republic. We can put our faith in laissez-faire economics. We can put our faith in our health, our bodies, our money, our 401k. We can even put our faith in LeBron James. Like whatever, right? Let me just, I'm going to give you some truth this morning. LeBron James is not the greatest player in NBA history. And everyone who loves MJ said Amen. That's all you needed to hear this morning, right? That's the truth. So let, please hear me. We are in a defining cultural moment where Jesus is asking the church the same question. Where is your faith? For many of us, I'm going to be honest with you, we've been wandering around the house looking for our faith. Some of us, we've misplaced it. And I think this pandemic has released a cultural and theological earthquake. And I think it's showing us who and what we truly believe in. So my question is, I'm going to be talking about this, and I think the question that Jesus is asking the church today, not only in our nation but around the world, where is your faith? Second, faith is not automatic. Everyone say automatic. This is the great misunderstanding of faith. 
We think that faith is like an electric blanket, which is always turned on. And if your faith is not always turned on, you must not have faith. So here, here's the thing. If you panic, there must be, on this assumption, must be something wrong with your faith. Now let me just go back to uh, the, the first point. Jesus, again, did not say you couldn't panic. Jesus today is not saying that you could never feel fear. Jesus is not saying you can never feel anxiety, right? I think what Jesus is doing, he's creating space and he is saying, hey guys, it's, it's normal. Everyone say normal. It's normal and okay to panic or feel fear or be, an, or be anxious as a response to a storm. The, the problem, and I think what Jesus is suggesting, is it's just not okay to stay in panic or fear. Especially when you, especially when you get to know who Jesus is. Like if you and I were in the, in the great wilderness, right, and there's a grizzly bear chasing us, and you are not afraid, right, I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to call you a psychopath, and I'm going to run, right? To feel something is not sin. To feel fear is not sin. To stay in it, to be defined by it, is. So third, the first, or excuse me, the second um, point is that faith is not automatic. But third, and this is the other side of the great misunderstanding of faith, and it's this. We just think we can fall into faith. Let me just say this really quick. You don't accidentally fall into faith. You don't accidentally have faith one day. Um, you don't just happen, come on somebody, to have faith. Or within our therapeutic culture, we kind of work from the assumption that if we just go with the flow, we'll get into faith. But what Jesus is saying is that faith has to be activated. Yeah, in other words, you've got to put it on every single day. I hope this is encouraging for you. So what Jesus is saying when he tells his disciples, where is your faith? I think he's saying, man, you've got to put on faith. Like this morning, thank God, thank, thank, thank the good Lord that you took off your pajamas and you put on some clothes before you came to church. How many of you think it's a good strategy every day to put on your clothes? That's not a trick question. Everyone said amen to that. Just like putting on clothes, we have to put on faith. Faith isn't automatically going to put itself on you. I wish that would happen with clothes. And all the people with seven kids said amen, right? That clothes just magically came on your body, but that never happens. We know that's not the case. We just don't fall into faith. Faith just doesn't happen. You have to put on faith. Paul says this throughout his corpus, throughout his letters, in other words, that you have to put on love, you have to put on gentleness, and you have to put on faith. We live and walk by faith, not by feelings. We don't, Paul never said, hey, I want you to um, fight the good feel of feel, right? No, he said what? He said fight the good fight of faith. Now, feelings are important. Can I get an amen? 
We have to learn to identify our feelings rather than suppress them. We, uh, feelings can tell us a lot about what we're experiencing. That is absolutely important. But we do not live on a steady diet of how we feel. We walk not by feelings. We walk by faith. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11 says this. I know I'm talking fast, but please go with me. It says, Sarah, who could not conceive at the age of 80, okay? She has a biological problem. But she believed and she put her trust in the one, or she considered the one faithful who promised. See, that is what faith is. Faith is considering the one who has promised. Even when things don't make sense, you still put your trust in the one who promised, right? And we don't live by feelings. We live by faith. So here's the thing, when you commit your life to something or anything, you have to do more than just try. Like if you're in high school right now and you, and you want to be a baller and you want to play at the collegiate level, right? You want to play uh, Division I basketball, you're going to have to do more than just try. In other words, you can't just live on your talent. If you want to go to the next level as a baller, what do you have to do? You can't try, you got to train, right? I don't care if you're LeBron or MJ or whatever, you... Doesn't matter your talent. If you want to go to the next level, you have to practice. Practice? You have to practice, right? And we call this in the world of scripture, spiritual practices. The way you activate your faith is you have to study scripture. You got to spend time with Jesus by praying, right? Reading scripture, meditating on the word of God, worshiping, right? come to service on Sunday, even when you don't feel like it, right? Saturday was, ah, I hated Saturday and I'm tired. I don't want to wake up and go to service. But you push through because you know that life, the life that God has given us and the walk of faith is not always easy, right? And so we're not going to walk by feelings. We're going to walk by faith and we're going to learn to practice the presence of God. And as you, check this out, as you spend time with Jesus in prayer and solitude and fasting, right, the things that we talk about Often, that is when your faith is activated. I think many of us think that, okay, okay, this message, okay, you got to activate your faith. Okay, today I'm just going to go out and just activate it. Right? I'm sorry, that doesn't happen like that. The way you activate your Jesus is you got to be with Jesus. And as you continue to be with Jesus, the Bible tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing comes from his word. Fourth. Uh, this is another kind of a piece of the great misunderstanding of faith. We think having faith and struggling are mutually exclusive. Paul said again, you have to fight the good fight of faith. And what he says throughout his letters is that life is engulfed in cosmic warfare. Ephesians 6 tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers who preside over this present darkness. So he's essentially telling us that uh, our walk of faith as a people, as we build for the kingdom of Jesus, is like going to war. And actually when you go through uh, the book of Timothy and the, his letters to Timothy, he tells us that the walk of faith is like going to, uh, to a gym. So faith is like a workout. What, is, what does a workout feel like? It feels like work. Like when you're sweating your face off, right? And you're doing all the, all the physical training and you're doing all the cardio and strength training, all that kind of stuff. And you're on the row and the Versa climber, right? Right. In order for you to grow and get your body in shape, what do you have to do? You have to work. You got to turn to your neighbor and say, work it. 
faith is kind of like that, right? Faith and struggle are not mutually exclusive. In fact, following Jesus is not a walk in the park on a nice sunny day all the time. I wish it was. How many of you love a nice sunny day like today and a picnic? How many of you want to do more picnics? A picnic, a walk in the park, by the river, that's awesome. And yes, some days following Jesus is like that. But there are some days when it's not like that. In fact, Paul says that following Jesus as a people, as we walk in faith, it's like sometimes it's like wrestling. Sometimes it's like fighting, struggling, exercising, boxing even. In fact, G.K. Chesterton says this, Jesus promised his disciples three things. That they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. So some of you are like, okay, can, uh, Chris, can you give me some encouragement? So here are two points. Hopefully this will encourage you, right? About faith and about storms. Pastor Ken has been talking about, and I think he coined the phrase, storm theology, which I love. So here are two points. This is kind of an excursus. Just kind of go with this. I'll get back to my, my other points here. But there are two points regarding storm theology. Number one, when we go through a storm and come out on the other side, we get to see another facet of who Jesus is. Here's the thing. Usually before adversity and struggle, let's just say we're right here. And we know abstractly that Jesus loves us. But when you go through a storm and you come out on the other side, what happens? Your, your understanding of God's love right, goes to another depth. When you're looking back, okay, to your, this old person who was abstracting about the love of God, and you're telling everybody about the love of Jesus, but you, you know, you're, you know it, but you really don't. But then you go through a store, storm, and in that storm, you see the signs of God's love, and then you come out on the other side, and you look back, you're like, okay, now I really know in the depths of my bones, not in an abstract way, but in a way that I, ne I never thought I could know that, yes, Jesus is alive and that God is love. So when we go through a storm and we come out on the other side, we get to see another facet of who Jesus is. When you go to the book of Revelation in chapter 4 and 5, you see 24 elders in heaven. And heaven overlaps with our space. But these 24 elders are always bowing. And then they come back up. And then they bow. Why are they always bowing? I, we, and we've talked about this before, but I think every time they look up at the Ancient of Days, they see a new facet of God's love and power and goodness. And it's so overwhelming that they have to bow again. Here's the thing. You can never exhaust the goodness of God. You can never, never, never exhaust the goodness of God. Number two, storms can also be clarifying. And they can do something to us. For example, there's a book that was written in 2002. It's called Surfing the Edges or Edge of Chaos. And uh, I'm just going to quote some of their stuff. Uh, another commentary uh, quotes uh, them as well. And I'm just going to kind of go through what they said. But this is what they talked about living systems as it relates to storms in our life. And they said this. Living systems theory is a survival of any living system um, in its ability to handle disturbances. So living systems um, have to be able to handle disturbances. They call this resilience. Resilience is built up through adversity, they say. For example, a fish in an aquarium can swim, breed, obtain food with minimal effort, and remain safe from predators. 
But as all aquarium owners know, such fish are excruciatingly sensitive to even the slightest disturbances in the fishbowl, right? With, and the reason why, is because they're living in an artificial environment. Owners, in other words, have to regularly clean the fish tank, monitor the temperature, watch the pH level, and feed the fish. On the other hand, fish in the sea have to work much harder to to sustain themselves. And they're subject to many more threats. But because they've learned how to cope with variation, temperature, food supplies, predators, they're much more robust when faced with challenge. For example, you can see this played out in Finding Nemo. Have you ever seen that movie? Right, I can't remember it, most of it, but at the end, kind of the end of the movie, what happens to Nemo? He's placed into an aquarium. And you see that aquarium as a safe environment which is prone to destructive outside forces. So let me ask you this question here today. Are you ready for this? Have you been living it safe? I think the church has been for some time quarantined from the world longer than the last two months. And I'm going to tie this back to storm theology. I think we are living in a moment where Jesus is rescuing the church out of our artificial environment. An environment, you might ask, that has been defined or is quarantined from the world. We are not, and I heard this from a preacher, and please hear me today, we are in this moment realizing as the people of God who are living for the sake of this world, we are not here for survival, we are here for revival. We are not called by Jesus to huddle and cuddle from the masses. We're called to serve and to love our city. Come on, somebody. And if that means risk, we will risk. We will risk. And if that means, if we're going to love people, if that means it might feel uncomfortable, then we will feel uncomfortable. If that means as we love people, people aren't going to like us that much, then let it be. I want you to hear me this morning. The measure of human flourishing in the Bible is not defined by how much you know. It is defined by how much you love. God is calling us out of our spiritual quarantine, which is defined from being apart from the world. You can know the Bible more than anybody in this room. But if you choose not to act on that or to choose to love like Jesus loves, you will never experience the peace of the flourishing that Jesus offers. So how do we overcome our aversion for risk and love? Because we all have it here this morning. I don't think we love love like we think we do. Jesus loving us, yes, we love that. Jesus, like taking care of us, going to the cross for us, yeah, we want that. Can I get an amen? And there's nothing wrong with that. But loving others like Jesus loves them? Ah, I don't know, right? I don't know if we really love that. Love, and the reason why is because love makes risk and vulnerability necessary. If we're going to really love the world, then we're going to have to be radically committed to being vulnerable. And we're going to have to be radically committed to, at times, being uncomfortable I don't think Jesus was all that comfortable on the cross. But he loved us all the way. Can I get an amen to that? And we are called 
to follow Jesus like that. So storms, what do they do? They do something to us. Right, what do they do? It's through adversity that God grows our faith, gets us out of our safe places, fills us with his power, fills us with his authority. Hey, I'm going to be really honest with you. I think what the church needs more than anything in this cultural moment, what is it? It's authority. And this authority is not like, I'm going to tell those Dems or those Republicans what to do. This authority is spiritual authority. It's an authority that God gives you, right? So you can be what Jesus has been for the world. That's the authority that God wants to give us. So how do we overcome our aversion for risk and safety? Uh, My last point is you have to replace your fears with something greater than your fears. Verse 25, he said to them, Jesus, where is your faith? And I love this. This is like, what? what's going on here? And then the disciples respond to Jesus, and they were afraid, and they marveled. And then they start talking to each other. And then this is what they said, kind of like a chorus. They, get, they said, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. They were afraid. What were they afraid of? Not the water. Not the wind. Come on, somebody answer. Who were they afraid of? They're afraid of Jesus. Somebody like, no, 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 you, no, 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 no. Chris, you preach perfect love, cast it all fear, right? And we believe that. We believe Psalm 46 says God is our refuge, a very present help in time of trouble, right? Therefore, we do not have to be afraid. The most common, right, commandment in Scripture is do not be afraid, and I absolutely agree with that. God's perfect love casts out all fear. What does that mean? All the wrong fears. The Bible also says, and this is kind of an interesting paradox, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want authority... If you want God's peace, his shalom, and his power, and if you want to grow your faith, you're going to have to learn the fear of the Lord. Right? And I think this whole fear here is absolutely appropriate. They were afraid of Jesus, not the sea. Right? They were afraid of Jesus who took authority over barometric pressure. Right? Does that put things into perspective? And when we come up against that kind of raw, naked power, something has to change in us. For example, uh, a while I was like 17, 18, and uh, I uh, was with uh, my friend. My friend is a good kid who's having a rough week. And so we were driving around, and we, were, we, we stopped at an intersection. And uh, he rolled down the window, and I didn't realize what he was doing. There were, on the side of the road, on this intersection, were some of the largest men. Everyone say men. Some of the largest men I've I've ever seen. I'm not joking. Back then, I mean, you would never know this, but I was kind of tiny. I mean, you would never, you know. Um, And so I remember looking at my friend, and my friend rolls rolls down the window, and he says, and we're going to keep it PG, he just says some, some pretty bad things to these men who were larger than life. Then he rolls up at his window and he looks at me and he says, let's go. I'm like, what did you just do? 
what, as we're going, I look in my, my uh, rear, view, rear view mirror. I had this purple Buick, right? So, but this, 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 this Buick could fly. So I'm like, okay, I look in my, my mirror and I look at these large men getting into their trucks, right? You don't mess with Idaho men who have trucks. <laughs> Idaho men in Subarus, you totally go for it, but not trucks, <laughs> right? So they're chasing us. Everyone say chase. So they're chasing us. And I, again, I'm 17, I don't know what to do. And I, the only thing, the only thought that came to me is I gotta get to dad's house, our house, right? So I drive up to um, uh, our, our house and uh, kind of, it, crazy story. We get to, to my place. Uh, my friend and I get out of the car. This is home turf, right? We're on the grass, about five men, like their truck, they had two trucks stop right at my house. They get out. I mean, it's going to go down, right? I'm going to get in my first fight, which I always wanted, but now I'm afraid, right? <laughs> These guys are going to destroy us. There's no way. There's no way that my friend and I are going to make it alive out of this situation. What's interesting, I, 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 I'm a, the Holy Spirit is my witness. In that moment, I mean, I was afraid about 15 seconds. I didn't know what to do. But I remember thinking, I think this was the Holy Spirit. I remember thinking to myself, I'm at my house. What if, as I'm thinking about dying, I started to think about my dad? This is this weird epiphanous moment. My dad coming out, right? <laughs> and hearing that, but different. My dad at that time was six foot five. He's still six foot five. I imagine him coming out, and I gotta be honest with you, I was afraid that my dad was gonna kill me. Like, literally, he wasn't going to, come on, guys. Literally, he wasn't going to kill me, but I was afraid, oh, my gosh, if my dad sees this, I'm dead. Instantly. I'm not joking. The Holy Spirit is my witness. Instantly, every fear that I had in that moment was gone. I promise you, I had this weird sense of peace. I go up to these guys. I don't even know what I said. My friend is still talking trash, right? I'm trying to tell him to shut up. These guys want to, like, just take his life. I get in the middle of this. I diffuse this escalating situation. The guys said, hey, come on. If, if he doesn't stop, we're going to come back and we're going to, like, whatever. They said a lot of different things. I said, okay, that's great. If he doesn't stop, just take his life. Just don't take mine, okay? I'm not a part of this. <laughs> they ended up leaving, right? And I remember thinking, I've thought about this so much, how every fear that I had in that moment was absolutely, absolutely overcome by a greater fear. I was more afraid of my father coming out and saying with that voice, right? Son, right? I was more afraid of that than these large men. I think that says something about what the fear of the Lord is. Are you? This is like old school preaching, I promise. Some preachers get weird with this. I'm not a weird guy, so I'm not going to get weird with this. But I'm going to ask you the question, are you afraid? Are you afraid? Luke 12 says this, verse 4, four through 7. Jesus is talking about being on mission. And he's talking to his disciples, and this is what he says. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. What? Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yeah. 
Huh? So is God a megalomaniacal deity? No. What Jesus is basically saying is that the Father has all the power of the cosmos in one little pinky finger. So let's just, let's just think normal about this, right? And then Jesus continues, yes, I will tell you, fear him. And then in verse 6, he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear, everyone say, fear not. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Fear not because your father loves you with an everlasting love. Fear not because you can have all the peace in the world in the midst of a storm. Fear not even when things don't feel safe and you can't figure things out and, man, every, the life, life is upside down. Fear not. Why? Even in the midst of your enemies who are persecuting you, who want to destroy you, even in the midst of suffering, you do not have to be afraid. Why? Because your Father loves you and your Father has all the power of the universe. Therefore, do not be afraid. So, Chris, are we supposed to be filled with love or with fear? I think we got to be filled with both. In fact, when I was a young man, I used to read uh, Chronicles of Narnia in The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. At the very end of it, you have Aslan coming back from the dead. And Susan and Lucy are now wrestling with Aslan. Lucy, I think it is, uh, turns to Susan and exclaims. They couldn't figure out, basically, Lucy says this, that she couldn't figure out whether... Uh, Wrestling and playing with Aslan was either like a thunderstorm or like playing with a kitten. And then they both conclude it's both. Aslan is an archetype of, of Jesus. Right? He's like a thunderstorm. But he's also the one who will love you to the very end. But he's also a thunderstorm filled with unimaginable power. And yet he loves you with an everlasting love. Are you hearing me? Let's not try to bifurcate those two. Like, let's, let's understand that, man, Jesus is greater than any fear that you can possibly have. And that Jesus loves you at the same time with an everlasting love. When we take a look, really quick as I close, when we take a look at Book of Numbers, if you're not familiar with Numbers, it's basically a survey on Israel's failure to enter the land because of unbelief. The source of their unbelief, it's really simple. They were in dreadful fear of the Canaanites. You can find this um, out in Numbers chapter 14. That unbelief is then dissected theologically throughout the book. One scholar says this, while the Israelites were too fearful to enter the land of Canaan, although this entrance had been divinely gifted to them, yet they had no fear of entering into the Holy of Holies. Right? That is, they had no fear of Yahweh himself. I want you to hear this. I think this is a very profound thought. The scholar continues, Indeed, because Israel did not fear God, they would fear their enemies. Because of that, they did not enter the promised land. Because they were unable to overcome their fear of risk, of giving everything to Yahweh, their fear Fundamentally, when it came to obedience, they were unable to enter into what God had promised them. And it's all connected to their lack of fear of God himself. Ellen Davis said this. Uh, she's a, a scholar at Duke University. She talks about the fear of the Lord. And she says, the fear of the Lord, yes, 
means reverence for the Lord. And uh, she continues to say, but uh, fear of the Lord means something more than reverence. She argues that translating the fear of the Lord as only reverence leaves way too much out. Uh, She says this, the writers are speaking first of all of our proper gut response to God, she writes. The fear of the Lord, this fear, is the unmistakable feeling in our bodies, in our stomachs, and our scalp when we run up hard against the power of God. From a biblical perspective, there is nothing neurotic about fearing God. The neurotic thing is not to be afraid or to be afraid of the wrong thing. That is why God chooses to be known to us so that we may stop being afraid of the wrong thing. When God is fully revealed to us in his love and in his power, we begin to get it. Then we experience the conversion of our fear. Can I get an amen to that? She continues, the time comes in every life and more than once when we are personally confronted with a power that spread out the heavens like a veil, that formed us out of the dust and blew breath into our lungs, that led Israel through the Red Sea on dry land and left Pharaoh's whole army floating behind. If we can experience that power close up and not be gripped in our guts by the disparity between God and ourselves, then we are in a profound state of spiritual slumber if not acute mental illness. Fear the Lord is the deeply sane recognition that we are not God. Fear the Lord understood in this way shares more in common with our sense of awe at something wondrously bigger than ourselves than it does with our anxiety in the face of evil that seeks to harm us. So I want to end by saying, I want you to hear me. I think Jesus is speaking to the church around the world and he's asking them this question, where's your faith? Where's your trust? So today, my question to you is, who or what are you putting your trust in? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Is it the economy? Is it that political party? Is it, I don't know, some news organization? Is it yourself? The question is we have to ask is who are we putting our trust in? We also have to ask ourselves, is Jesus bigger than our fears, right? Are we afraid, are we more afraid of our fears than we are of Jesus who calms the sea and the water and pressure? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter one that it's through the word of Jesus that the entire cosmos is upheld. Who are we afraid of? But my question also is today, and I want you to think about this, are you afraid? If you're afraid right now, I want you to know that it's okay because Jesus is right there with you. If you're anxious, you have no peace, you're panicking today, that's all right. Let me just encourage you, Jesus is with you in your boat. And it might feel like he's sleeping, but he's not, right? I think one author said, man, Jesus sleeps so we can wake up. And I just have a feeling by the Holy Spirit today that some of you are waking up to the reality of who God is. I think Jesus right now throughout our world is rousing the church and waking the church up to his beauty, his power, his everlasting love, right? So let me just say this, Jesus is for you. Today, let's let 
Jesus flood us with his peace. Let the Holy Spirit today build up your faith and let's be a people who risk everything for the sake of God's kingdom. I'm not talking about let's be reckless for the kingdom of God. I'm talking about let's risk everything for the broken people in our world. If that makes us uncomfortable, ah! If that makes you feel vulnerable, ah! Right, I don't know why I'm going, ah! But we're called to love like Jesus is loved. And let me just say this really quick. Faith is not about Jesus and me. Faith is not just about how I could get something out of God. Now, here, let me just say this really quick. Jesus wants to give you the world. He wants to bless you and flood you with his presence and his grace and his goodness. But that's just not for you. If you just keep faith about just you and Jesus, that's not what God has called us to. We call that narcissism. Jesus wants to bless you so you can bless your neighbor. Jesus wants to bless you and build your faith so you can bring authority and hope to the broken people down the street from your house. Jesus wants to fix you. Jesus wants to flood you with his presence because there are people in this world that do not know who Jesus is. Their lives are irreparably broken by a culture of lovelessness. And what this generation needs to see more than anything is a generation that is filled with faith and a generation that loves the hell out of everything. So if you're afraid this morning, let Jesus come and fill you with his peace. Could you bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray? Father, I thank you for your grace.